Four months, almost to the day, since the October massacre and the beginning of the war between Israel and Hamas. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu saying total victory is within reach, while the country is torn over a hostage deal that Hamas essentially shot down with its response this week. We have a lot to talk about, latest development, and of course, answer your questions. It's Unholy. I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland, usually in London, this time in Delhi. Your that little sigh speaks volumes, Johnny Levy. Um, here I am. I was just about to explain it's unholy two Jews on the news, and yes, I'm in Delhi. But the sigh speaks volumes because it was I think a sigh and a bit of a rolling of the eyes. It's just uh, frequent flyer Friedland has been in New Hampshire and in Delhi in the past three weeks, while I have been sitting in my house in Tel Aviv. So just a little bit of, you know, you don't have to show off so much, is what I'm saying. Now you can explain. Yeah. <laughs> You are quite right. Normally, uh, I am much more of a sort of home bird than this, but the last few weeks have seen a lot of travel. New Hampshire was obviously on journalistic duty covering the Republican primary. This time in India, uh, in a different capacity, wearing a different hat, not as a journalist or reporter. Um, instead, my visa was granted to be a visiting author at the Jaipur Literary Festival, uh, which is a phenomenon. And uh, the whole experience has been pretty extraordinary, as you can guess. It is actually my second time in the country and hugely interesting. I thought from our point of view, a bit different, a different perspective on everything. For one thing, if you watch the TV news, they bring you an update, not from the Middle East, but from West Asia. Because, of course, if you're sitting in Jaipur or in Delhi, the Middle East isn't East. It's West of you, and it is West Asia. That was interesting. It's also a country which, not always historically, but certainly in the under the current uh, administration of uh, Narendra Modi, very pro-Israel, and that is manifested in all kinds of ways. I've been looking, and I have not seen, for example, or rather, I have seen fewer Palestinian flags here in India on display than I would see in my own neighbourhood in London. That's um, very interesting. I have seen. I have seen precisely one, and that was on the lapel of a British speaker at the Jaipur Literary <laughs> Festival, who was wearing a Palestinian flag as a pin nowhere else. And you know, and this going is through the world's third largest Muslim population, right? We should maybe well, right. Say. We should say that. I mean, it's one point four billion people live here, and an estimated fourteen percent. So you do the math of those. That's you know way in excess. That's about 160, 180, maybe even closing on 200 million Muslims live in India. But because obviously it's uh, Modi is a Hindu nationalist, and it, maybe this is part of it. Expressions of strong overt Muslim identity are uh, you know that are freighted now in this environment. It's a very different atmosphere. Even when I was here. A decade ago, before Modi took over, and I think probably overt expressions of Muslim solidarity would not go down too well here. That's my guess. As I say, I've not been in here, been here in reporter mode, um, but that's my you know impression. I think there are a lot of people here who are feeling, and it's certainly coming from the top, solidarity with Israel, and not necessarily for reasons that one would wholly applaud. There is, you know, a quite large anti-Muslim sentiment in India. 
And that expresses itself in some ways in thinking, well, you guys are fighting the enemy, we're fighting, and so all power to your elbow. As I said, big historic change. This was the country that in the era of Indira Gandhi was uh, an ally of, one of the first people to recognize the PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization, as the sole representatives of the Palestinian people. Yasser Arafat was a frequent visitor here. Um, so this has been a historic realignment by uh, by Modi. Big buddies with uh, Netanyahu. A lot of people think he's a lot like him. Um, so that's a big change, and it has you know it filters down just not just only from government level because I've been traveling around not just in you know the big cities, and uh, you do pick up a sense that he speaks in a way for them in feeling as if Israel is fighting a fight against Muslims, which in some ways they empathize with. All this is very interesting, and it's true that, you know, as as an Israeli, I'm interested in how the world sees us. But uh, as a co-host of Unholy, I just want to tell you that I did check the stats on how many listeners we have in India before you traveled there, and I'm waiting to see the stats after you return. I'm just saying, I hope you did a little bit of work there, because there is some work to be done. It is. There's no, a pleasant little uptick. En route, um, actually, here, I spoke to an old friend who is a bit of a, an Asia hand, who's been living many years in Singapore. He told me that Unholy is big among the Singapore Jewish community. And I did not know uh, of that. I didn't know, frankly, there was much of a Jewish community there. But um, shout out to them. We are ambition. Talking about West Asia, if we build an audience in Southeast Asia, all to the good. Right. World domination is us. Okay. Um, <laughs> news? What's going on besides you news and, showboating and, uh, your tourism around the world? Yeah, no, we're well, lots. And, uh, and obviously lots especially going on where you are. Some talk before I left that, you know, maybe a deal was about to come. And we talked about it here on the podcast, but it hasn't quite panned out that way yet as we speak. Right, yet being the operative word. So Hamas replied to the basic framework of the deal in a way that is a non-starter for Israel. And it's very clear that it's a non-starter for Israel. Hamas is demanding thousands of Palestinian prisoners be released from uh, Israeli uh, jails, including those sentenced to uh, life in prison for mass murder of Israelis. They're all in all 8,000 prisoners. Uh, so that is is something that Israel can't agree to. And of course, a, a halt to the total halt to the war obviously an answer that Israel had to uh, say no to. And the prime minister indeed spoke on Wednesday and said, this is an hallucination. Uh, if we capitulate to these demands, this will bring forth another uh, attack like October 7th. That doesn't change the fact that there are still 136 hostages held by Hamas. We should say that uh, the numbers are being updated. The Israeli public knew that the estimation by uh, Israeli officials are, is that 30 of these hostages are not alive. We talked about this on the podcast as well. Uh, by the way, no one officially saying this to Israelis, which I think is problematic, but actually talking through international media. And then, of course, the New York Times are reporting this week that there's a, a concern uh, for the lives of 20 other hostages. It is very clear that the more time passes, the more this is dangerous for them. Uh, a very emotional plea by five hostages, uh, the youngest of which being uh, Sahel Calderon. She's just 16, essentially begging the government to bring back uh, the hostages, again, without an actual deal on the table. But the sentiment is very much just bring them home now. And the the psychological uh, trauma inflicted on this waiting by this waiting game, this uncertainty. Mm -hmm. You know that a certain portion of the hostages are dead, and those families thinking, "Is it one of mine? Is it my 
child, mm-hmm. my parent, my brother, sister, husband, who is there. And that is something Hamas have exploited with some of those messages and videos in which they've said, almost as if it was some kind of sick reality TV show, one of these three people is dead. We're not going to tell you who. So this is psychological warfare. The um, battle of interpretation about who exactly is holding up this deal is interesting. You said right at the top there that Hamas have said no. A lot of the view from outside is, you know, Restore is saying Hamas are taking a look and they're having a thing. Meanwhile, quoting Israeli ministers saying, our war goes on. We haven't finished yet. And you have Gallant saying that a next stop, Rafah. That's our focus next for a major ground operation. And so the perception outside, I have to say, in a lot of places, not uniformly, is that actually it's Israel and Netanyahu's government that is not in such a huge hurry to to do this deal, partly because they are anxious that once it stops, it can't start up again, and also that Hamas will use that simply to regroup. So there are good reasons why it would be wary of this or see this thing as a trap. But it's interesting, there's a battle over the spin, inevitably, over who gets blamed for saying no. Of course, I'm not surprised that there is a battle of the spin. I didn't say that Hamas said no. I said that the list of Hamas's demands, and they know this, are something that uh, Israel cannot agree to. And thus is another way of Hamas to turn the blame on Israel saying no. So this is where we are. And, and what Israel thinks and what Israel believes in the defense echelon, not only Netanyahu and Gallant think, uh, that the more pressure, the more military pressure put on Hamas, that will make them agree to a deal. Indeed, uh, the battle of Hanunis is continuing. Israel is considering entering into other areas. It does seem like the war is now conducted in a way that Israel is um, thinks that it is bringing achievements in trying to uh, win the war against Hamas. I would say that in any case, there is uh, sadly, a lot of politics going on here. I will remind you when we talked about this, uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, an important minister in Netanyahu's coalition, threatening to leave if Netanyahu goes for a deal. And of course, the other side of this coalition, the more moderate side, the Benny Gantz and the Gadi Eisenkot, uh, threatening to, not threatening, that's less their style, but considering to leave the government if he doesn't go for this deal. So there's immense pressure on this government. It, it is a government toward apart. I mean, and, and just the case in point is the fact that this government authorized more humanitarian aid aid to go through Kerem Shalom. There were uh, protesters against letting this uh, aid through. The police tried to prevent them from preventing the aid to come in. And then the police commissioner was upbraided by the government that actually authorized this humanitarian aid to come in. Why was he arresting the protesters? So this is the the reality that we are in uh, at this point of the war. Yeah, and that police commissioner, of course, answering to his ministerial boss, namely Itamar Ben-Gvir. And so it's one wing of the government. The right hand doesn't agree with what the far right hand is doing with this government. And they are, you know, different things. I think it would be an almost, it would require the wisdom of Solomon, this dilemma, anyway, actually. It is a very hard moral dilemma, this one, about the moral imperative to get those hostages back, and yet the moral risk of knowing that in doing that, you hand this huge space and time and opportunity to a mortal enemy. So I get that. The critique I have of Netanyahu is not that this is an easy dilemma to solve. It is the sense, not just articulated by me, but by many people who are uh, close to military decision-making, that the way Netanyahu is is wrestling with this dilemma is the problem because he is not thinking of what is best for the country hard enough 
to resolve that question. He's instead thinking what is best for him and his own political survival. And that's why we see him just accommodating, indulging these far-right members of his coalition, even when, as you've just given us a perfect example, they undermine the government's own policy. I think that's the problem. It's not that people think this is an easy call, mm. this judgment call that Israel uh, has to make. It's a tricky call. It's 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 morally you know, freighted, uh, but he's not making it in that morally freighted way. He's making it to save his own skin. Look, there was, and I mentioned this, the uh, hostages, the emotional plea yesterday, every one of them, each and every one of them opened with, I beg the prime minister, essentially begging the prime minister and his family, in some cases to say, and his wife, to think about the moral imperative to bring these people back. And even if the price is very, very high and can be very high, the country that we will become if we, in a sense, not even in a sense, if we abandon these people, is a, you know, a moral stain forever. There are a lot of Israelis that have, I think, that feel like the prime minister needs to be more on board with this, with this plan. And again, as you said, even in the most objective situation, not with a government that's the most far-right government in the history of Israel, this is a very, very uh, difficult dilemma. It is. And uh, since we're mentioning the far-right government, and this man's name keeps coming up, um, Itamar Ben-Gvir made news abroad and inside Israel this week by giving quite a rare interview uh, with foreign his media to the Wall Street actually. Journal. Yeah, he's, there we are. He's first. It's not I through lack of uh, uh, bids and requests to interview him. I think lots of people have wanted to. He chose uh, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they didn't quote him at huge length, just a few key sentences. But the heart of it was a line when he thumbed his nose at Joe Biden by saying, ah, oh, Israel would be having a better friend. It would have much more support. If Donald Trump was in charge, um, we prefer him. I think quite a few analysts have made in what is in some ways the obvious point, which is, yeah, that's a diss of Joe Biden by Ben Gvir, but the person who he's thumbing his nose at is, of course, his nominal boss, Benjamin Netanyahu, because what Ben Gvir is effectively saying is, I don't care about cabinet discipline. I don't care that this undermines your relationship with your opposite number in the United States and indeed Israel's relationship with the United States, because I know I can do anything. You can't touch me. I mean, he's like one of those sort of, you know, a kid taunting uh, another kid from behind sort of, you know, his uh, mother's skirt saying, there's nothing you can do to touch me because if I go, your coalition goes with it. And so um, an act of sort of recklessness and uh, towards the US-Israel relationship, you know, which is Israel's number one strategic asset, but also an act of defiance and sort of insolence by Ben Gvir towards Netanyahu. Yes, I, I want to say um, something about this interview and that this is a very sophisticated populist. What he's trying to do here is not only to wag the finger at Netanyahu. I want us to look at, at, at the bigger picture, right? I mean, obviously, you have uh, politicians who are very responsible, people like Benny Gantz saying this is damaging the relationship. People like Aryeh Deri, who is not exactly from the Israeli left, tweeting, thank you, President Biden. We will never forget what you did for the state of, of Israel, tweeting this in English. But what is Ben Gvir doing here? He's essentially saying, I'm in a win-win situation, right? If the government does go to a deal and I object to it, I leave the government elections. This is what I run on for my base. They'll like it. If the government 
continues the war, I'll say it's because of me. This is a win-win situation. And why is he throwing Donald Trump into this mix? Because he's betting that Donald Trump is the next president. And he's betting that if this administration is not even giving him a visa, the next administration is going to invite him to the White House. This is all for him, a very elaborate plan. He's sophisticated. And he doesn't mind so much, I'll put it mildly, that people think this is damaging or incredibly damaging to the relationship with an administration that has given Israel to this point billions in ammunition and in, in supplies to say nothing of support. Yeah, and that Biden is paying such a huge price. Domestically, He this is coming at such a cost for him. It's alienating a huge part of his own base in the Democratic Party, young Democrats saying they will not vote for Joe Biden, even if that risks the return of Donald Trump. And in a really focused, particular way, the Arab American community, particularly concentrated around the city of Dearborn, Michigan, tens of thousands of votes in an absolute must-win state, jeopardizing his chance of winning Michigan and therefore the presidency. The analysts who I trust say that there is still three states that you will determine this election, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Michigan is now in play and in doubt because of this position that Biden has taken of supporting Israel. And this is the gratitude he gets. A minister of the government he's helping, saying, in a way, showing him the middle finger, and doing it in such a way that actually um, humiliates Biden as well, in, You know, even though if his main target is the prime minister. I take absolutely your point about he's thinking ahead. And remember, of course, Donald Trump, his only criterion ever is, is this person nice to me? And he remembers, he he will remember uh, who said something nice. So if Bengvi's visa comes up in 2025 and tr Trump is back in the White House, of course he'll grant it because his only relevant judgment determinant will be, was he nice to me? Last thing about the interview, he did also say that uh, his ambition is to resettle Gaza. Again, undermining the official policy of the government. Yoav Gallant has said repeatedly in terms that is not what we plan to do. By the way, partly so because Netanyahu. they've got one eye. Yeah. And so is, I was going to say, so mm. even as Netanyahu, because they have one eye on the International Court of Justice and those stipulations that have come down from The Hague saying these are you know statements you have to not be making if you want us to you know la rule in your favour on South Africa's genocide case. So Benkvi is smashing it all up, causing huge damage for Israel, once again, just because it helps his base. Where, I wonder, did he learn that from? <laughs> from the master, uh, the Netanyahu himself, who he is now defying. Can I just ask a question? I agree with a lot of what you said, but there is an interesting poll that came out this week. I, I'm sure you saw it. It's political polls approving of Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war among Democrats. 52% approve uh, and 29 disapprove, which does just say, I'm not saying that Dearborn, Michigan is not important. It does say something about the silent majority in the in the Democratic Party. This actually approves of what Biden is doing, his policy in, in the Middle East, specifically vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel and Hamas. And it does mean that he should be worried, by the way, not a, really, maybe not too much about the progressives in the left flank, but actually the middle ground who like what he's doing. And if something changes on that, he might, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just interested in that. That kind of, that poll came out and it showed that there is a complete detachment between what is going on on Twitter and the noise that we hear and what is the reality. 
Sure, that they, that's right. And in fact, there was a really interesting piece of reporting saying that in Pennsylvania, for example, another one of those three states that he has to win, his position on Israel actually goes down quite well. There's no, uh, you know, there is support for it. Absolutely. Biden's problem, given how close 2020 was, and given that at the moment Trump is ahead, is 52% of Democrats' its approval on this one issue is not good enough. He needs all of them. He can't afford to lose even a slice. Mm-hmm. So yes, most of the base are happy, but that young progressive wing is enough to cause you problems, especially when you uh, factor in this very localized uh, constituency or community of Arab Americans in Michigan. So yes, uh, I think that's right. If people have got the impression that we're saying all Democrats hate this policy, that's wrong. Plenty mm-hmm. like it. Um, and they have there's still a strong generational uh, you know attachment to Israel. The issue is you need all of them, which is why he needs this story, frankly, out of the news yeah. because they're never going to agree on it, all Democrats. But it's better for him if they're just not talking about it. Get them back onto you know abortion rights or climate change or hating Donald Trump. Then suddenly the numbers who are with Biden get to 80, 85, 90 right. percent. That's what he needs to win this election. But for that um, minority in the party, that is looking that left flank, I think what the administration, we wanted to talk about that as well, what the the administration's decision about sanctioning uh, for West Bank settlers is something that they can look at and be pleased with. We we should talk a little bit about that because obviously that also made, we should say, quite a splash here in this uh, uh, country. So as we said, sanctioning for West Bank uh, settlers implicated in violence. Uh, These people are not very well known we should say. But the implications of this is really the point. It looks like a beginning of something larger. It looks like when you read or you go through uh, what actually uh, the order that has been issued is, it can relate to a lot of other things, right? It can relate to donations to the settlements. It can relate to uh, funding. It can relate to other operatives in the Israeli government in the way that it is it, that it is worded. It, it means a lot. Um, and a lot of people in Israel have become concerned. By the way, uh, Minister Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich tried to tell Israeli banks not to freeze these accounts. They can't actually do that. And the um, and the central bank actually told the uh, min- finance minister that there's nothing to do, that if uh, this is the directive from the United States government, that these um, that these accounts will be freezed. He had to do it, I think, Biden. He had to throw something back to that progressive wing. He had to throw something to them to show that he is not just falling in line behind this super right-wing government in Israel. The longer that he might not have had to do it if this had been a two-week war in October, but he had to do it because it's gone on so long and they are demanding, they're calling him Genocide Joe. You know, he's, these are people on the left who would normally be voting Democrat and who did vote Democrat in 2020. He had to throw them a bone. For him, it wouldn't be that difficult because, remember, his administration is committed to a two-state solution and making a distinction between Israel proper and the West Bank is in line with their policy. That's in theory. But as a matter of politics, no, it's a tough thing he's uh, done. Uh, you know, it was a, a gesture he had to make. It means that, you know, in a way, the feeling is mutual. There's Ben Gvir slating him, you know, a settler himself and a sort of leader of that, you know, uh, constituency, laying into Biden. Biden is saying, you know, well, I'm no fan of yours either. Here's what I'm going to stick you guys with. So it becomes very clear. The other thing I noticed as well was that in some of the statements the White House is making, 
balancing the usual language about support for Israel when they were when the Biden administration were urging Congress to pass this bill that will give billions of dollars in aid to Israel, also Ukraine and things they want, uh, they, Biden's statement was, this is urgent, yes, to support Israel, but also we really have to get uh, humanitarian aid in to the Palestinians whose need is intense and urgent. Uh, I forget the exact word he used, but the point was this was new language too. And that was noticed that Biden feels the need to show that he is not just all in, four square behind Netanyahu and his government, but he has got criticisms of the far right and is going to make gestures that his own base are demanding. Yeah. And by the way, you said uh, the Biden administration and Ben Gvir, when you when this is worded in a way that says actions including directing, enacting, implementation, or failing to enforce policies, who's failing to enforce policies if not the Minister of National right. Security, Ben Gvir? So it's, it's very clearly setting the stage. It's not only saying to Israel, you have been ignoring this problem and we are now, now taking care of it uh, in, in the way that we see fit. But it's also signaling to people like Ben Gvir and to people like Smotrich, we're watching you. On last week's podcast, we issued one of our occasional, I think this is the second time we've done it, calls for questions from you, listeners' questions. Uh, and once again, in fact, this time you have surpassed yourself. So many questions coming in. And confirmation, really, that our audience is now really truly global. Questions from, uh, obviously, Israel, the United States, but from the Netherlands, from Australia, from Germany, from Canada, from all over. And we are very, very grateful for them. And especially because so many of you said how much you have been enjoying, but also relying on leaning on unholy. So we appreciate that hugely. As I say, lots of very, very good questions. Some of them converging on very sort of similar points. Why don't we begin uh, with two questions that came in, which cover similar ground. Uh, and we start with this one from Joe Frankel. Hi, this is Joe from Israel. And my question is this. Between two ends of the extremes, resettling in Gaza or a two-state solution, in your opinions, what should the day after look like? Thanks. And then there is a similar question uh, from Sean in Sydney. There are various media reports that with the sinning of the IDF from northern Gaza, that Hamas are returning to run the area. My question is, uh, doesn't the fact that Netanyahu's refusal to engage in any genuine discussion about the day after can, will lead to a vacuum in Gaza, which is, will result in a de facto Hamas-type government filling the gap um, contrary to what the war's aims are? Um, very good questions relating to, essentially, uh, what is supposed to happen now? Uh, it's been four months, and Hamas is being pummeled by Israel. It can continue, but at some point, someone will have to step in and run Gaza. And there has been, um, let's say, many in the defense echelon in Israel, also analysts sitting in my studio in Jerusalem, in the outskirts of Jerusalem, saying that as, if Israel does not say who shall take control of Gaza, uh, essentially it's leaving a vacuum and vacuums don't exist in the Middle East. And then Hamas, whatever is left of it, still takes control. We've been seeing a little bit of that in the uh, parts that Israel uh, has left, the Israeli army has, has left in the uh, northern part of the Gaza Strip. Netanyahu himself uh, answers this critique again, coming uh, from internally from Israel as Israelis as well, saying, look, 
as long as Hamas is strong, yet not defeated, uh, no one will be crazy enough to come in. So we have to defeat Hamas So in, in order to decide who's coming in. Obviously, you can argue that point. But we remember what happened in 2007 when Hamas took over the Gaza Strip and started throw, really throwing physically a Palestinian Authority uh, Fatah members off the roof and killing them. So I think it's also a question when and how Fatah will come in. And it is pretty clear that the contours of this will be, by the way, you, you heard the Egyptians saying to, we reported this, saying to Israelis, we are willing to help any sort of Palestinian entity, any Palestinian Authority representatives on the ground with Egyptians helping them out. Obviously, Gulf money or Saudi money. Um, Israel has to agree to all this. <laughs> There's that. But we understand what the contours of this should look like and possibly, probably will look like. Yeah, I mean, the idea that this is what could happen uh, if uh, the, the scenario Sean, Sean sketches that uh, Hamas could return, I think the evidence is it's already happening. Israel can't be everywhere. The IDF is not everywhere in Gaza. The minute it withdraws troops from any part of Gaza, there's strong evidence that Hamas men re-emerge into those areas. They come out of their tunnels and tell the local population, we're back. There was video circulating of Hamas police officers, not in uniform, but arresting dozens of people they accused of theft in Gaza City and parading them half naked through the streets. Uh, apparently, Hamas has redeployed civil servants near the Shifa hospital. We remember when Israel uh, took that, but it's been since vacated by IDF troops. I mean, the, the reason why those two examples are so pertinent, I think, is they're not about just fighters popping out of a tunnel for two seconds and going back down again. This is about reasserting administrative control, ruling the strip again. Uh, there was a very instructive piece in, uh, again, The Atlantic, I mentioned it last week, but this time by Ahmed Fuad Al-Khatib, who is from Gaza, but now um, based in the United States, a citizen of the United States, writes very inf well-informed commentary on what's going on there. He says he's noticed that professionals who are involved in planning day-after scenarios for Gaza, I'm quoting now, have started discussing post-war plans instead of post-Hamas plans, signaling a shift in expectations. In other words, they don't think Hamas is going. They think it's back in charge. And that poses, to me, my mind, a huge question about what was all this for? I mean, how do you begin to turn to the families of those IDF uh, soldiers who, who were lost and say, you know, what their, what that loss of life was for if Hamas are back in control? But also, the, in terms of the rest of the world who have seen this colossal death toll, including allies who have stand, stood by Israel and said, well, look, this is, if this is the price that has to be paid in order to destroy Hamas, they'll bite their tongue and instead it seems like within months they're they're back so to me this is a really uh huge grave problem and as i say i don't think it waits for the day after it's already now right. it's not a sort of future scenario it's a scenario right now so what al-khatib writes about is what's needed is an international administration of some kind forget an armed force but just to do the basics of keeping civil order that could involve jordanians or the united nations or the egyptians and so on they won't come in unless there's a promise from the israel government that it countenances a palestinian state that is their diplomatic medium for any participation in a force that will 
govern instead of Hamas. Yeah, you know, I I think that there's been so much misinformation, disinformation. Hamas is back in charge is a very, you know, I think it's a very broad brushstroke to what is happening now. I, I called it in a conversation with you. I said it's not gaslighting, it's Gaza lighting. I think that there is a way out of it. I think that the Saudi initiative that the Biden administration is working on is also a way out of it. And indeed, Israel will have to say something about the future of the Palestinians. But first, first, we need to make sure and Israel needs to make sure that Hamas is defeated. It is it should be said, uh, as we are in the, you know, ending our fourth four months into this war, that indeed Hamas is being hurt badly. It is not yet on its knees. And I think what Israel is saying to the rest of the world is, give us a little bit more time. We can get this done. And then we'll talk about the day after. I agree with you that there's a difference between saying, let's talk about the day after in six months, because also coincidentally, there's a prime minister that anything he says is going to get him into hot water with one part of his government and saying it now. There is a big difference on that. We totally agree. Yeah. The pushback I would offer just first of all is, you mentioned the Saudi Saudi initiative. They have said that there has to be a statement on Palestinian statehood. That's their minimum. By the way, that was not a price they demanded pre-October 7th. Things have got harder for them. They were actually ready to get closer. uh, We don't actually know because the wording of that wasn't finalized. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But now that's the demand. And it has to, and now we do know that, that that has to be said. They won't go in any other way. There is no other route. And my point is, in a way, I think what the difference between us is a bit on this is I just don't see it as plausible to imagine a pro- the kind of defeat scenario for Hamas that you're imagining. I didn't think it at the start, by the way, and I really don't think it now because. I remember us in December talking and you saying, yeah, it's again, obviously, it may just be a few more weeks into January. Now it's mid-February. And again, they're saying we need a bit more time. And the point is, they can't be everywhere. And the minute you're out of one place, you pull out of the north, Hamas pop back up again. You get, you're in Khan Yunis now and say, yes, we've quieted the problem. You leave Khan Yunis and go to Rafa, they're going to appear again in Khan Yunis. The point is they're all underground in those tunnels. They can wait and they have waited. So the premise of what I'm saying is Hamas is not about to be, I know, not eliminated, which is what was said initially in the first few weeks. I don't really think they're uh, even sufficiently on their knees for them to be removed as a key factor in Gaza. And I, you know, uh, my loathing of Hamas is unbounded. I wish that I could believe that. But I look at what's happened and the fact that they're already back. And I think, I don't think it's realistic anymore to to be talking like that. I know the government of Israel keeps talking like that. I just don't see the evidence that it's that it's sound. And the proof of that is partly the fact that rockets are still coming uh, on, on you and your, you know, your, the, your city and others four months into this thing with the full might of the IDF, they still haven't even managed to rid Hamas of its ability to fire rockets, let alone remove it as a governing force in Gaza. I, I think it's for the birds. And therefore, I think instead, you've got to think of other scenarios. And the entry ticket for those other scenarios is a political horizon. It's what Netanyahu can't give. And yet it's what Israel has to give to let this next stage happen. Everything we're saying here is just an indication of why this war needs to continue and not uh, stop. But I think that we should stop to take more questions. So let's hear. Yes, it's true. Rather than questions from each other. So here are another two that are related. 
היי אונית, היי ג'וני, אני מיוט פן של הפודקאסט, ואני באמת אהבתי את הפודקאסטים והאינטראקציות, קיבלו אותם. מי השאלה היא, מה הם החלטות על הפעם האחרונה על ישראל שאולי יש לנו אלקציה בפתח של המדינה? I'm afraid most people who consider supporting this initiative aren't really grasping what a serious action like this might bring upon the safety of the state, although I can totally see their point. Thank you. Shalom, Yonid and Jonathan. This is Michael from El Paso, Texas. I have a question for you regarding what the future of Israel's military and political leadership will look like. Obviously, October 7th was a horrific day for Israel and the Jewish people, but was also, uh, from a military intelligence perspective, a colossal failure. As a, as a current service member, I've seen all echelons of command be relieved for mistakes far less egregious than the one that happened in Israel. Um, but I'm curious, who is the next generation of, of military and political leaders? Because... Netanyahu, Gantz, Gallant, um, Lapid, Lieberman, these folks have been running this country for a very long time and are very entrenched in the military and the intelligence world. If they leave, who will replace them? And is there confidence that the next generation will be able to ensure Israel's security? Because obviously Israel's security is paramount. Thank you very much. So, first of all, thank you to Omer, and thanks to Michael. I have to first answer what, what Michael asked, and I have to say, sadly, Israel doesn't really have a policy of its public officials owning up to failure. I'll say that mildly, right? Um, there's even an expression in Hebrew <clears throat> which says, I'll translate it, blame the Shingima, blame the gate guard, blame the lowest-ranking soldier and not the people actually responsible. There's, I think, also a reason why the word accountability actually doesn't have a translation in Israel. So <laughs> after saying all that, all that notwithstanding, I think the anger after October 7th is such that it will be very, very difficult for people who are now in charge to avoid responsibility. Uh, for this one, I'll remind our listeners after the Yom Kippur War, the government took very little responsibility. The commission set up, the Aganath Commission, also blamed the military specifically, but the public anger and rage was such that the protests were, were such that the Golda couldn't uh, essentially continue and had to resign. I'm not saying we're at the same point here, but I mean, that is where I think Israel might be in. I, I thought Michael's point about a new generation of political and military leadership is interesting because some of the people who have talked about, like, for example, Benny Gantz, they don't quite count as a new generation. It would be a change. Are, are there people who are like 20 years younger than Bibi, 25 years, who are people are talking about as a whole wholesale you know, passing of the torch? Is, is there anyone around in that category? Well, I think that the interesting thing is what is happening in the sort of the, among the civilians in Israel. What you're seeing is this amazing coming together, and not only of the kind of assistance to Israelis in need, you see the people who have become these heroes, and actually, if I can specifically say, men, women who have become heroines of, you know, the, the hostage movement. We, we spoke to Rachel Goldberg on this podcast, other women, amazing women, uh, like Merav Leshem, women who are fighting for their families, but also you kind of see these remarkable uh, personas. I think some of them might at some point, enter into uh, Israeli uh, leadership. I hope they will, because it is a, a different voice uh, from the voices that we, we have heard so far. 
it will be very interesting if there is a breakout sort of figure who does emerge from this. Some of those generals who were incredibly heroic on the day um, of October the 7th, who, you know, jumped in a car and went down and saved lives. I've, I've wondered about them, Noam Tibon, Yai Golan. There are a few Yisrael of those uh, people. <laughs> That's the third. <laughs> Yisrael Ziv, I know, and very important, and, all, you know, all ex- extraordinary stories, all of them. So that's an interesting question. And what about Omer's, um thought about a- an election mid-war? And, I mean, I made the point really early on, I mean, I wrote a Guardian column within a week or two saying Netanyahu should go, and Israel shouldn't be frightened of this because the Churchill precedent in 1940, but it wasn't an election. I mean, Chamberlain was forced out and Churchill came in place, but it wasn't an election. It was a parliamentary manoeuvre mm-hmm. that pushed him out. Having an election, voters, ballots, polling stations, while the country's at war, I don't think it's ever happened, but is that itself a sort of taboo or is that a fear that Israelis would have, do you think? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how many taboos are still left, uh, to be honest, after what we've went through uh, in the past four months. Look, there is the substantial uh, voice calling for elections and for elections very soon. It's a complicated thing to do during a war. I remind you that even if the Knesset dissolves, then it's another three months uh, until uh, elections or minimum of three months. So it's a complicated thing. There are a lot of people who think that it's important. I think that the minute we see, our indication will be one of two things, either Ben Gvir, the far right flank of this government leaving, uh, or the moderate part of this government, i.e. Uh, Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot, leaving. That will be a signal that we are heading towards elections. Is it, as Omer asks, something that is is can be detrimental to the country in the middle of this situation? Maybe. But it kind of feels when you listen to some of the politicians in this country, they're already running an election campaign. So... You know, I, I think that is where we are heading, wh- whether we like it or not. And let me just pick up one thing from Michael's question, and indeed from your observation about there being no direct Hebrew word for accountability. Because uh, he says, I've seen all echelons of command be relieved from mistakes far less egregious than the ones that happened in Israel. Just on this point of accountability, a story which I confess just inc- depressed me so much this week, which is about, in some ways, about uh, accountability. There'd been a report uh, a while back, a few weeks back, about uh, um, a telegram channel uh, that targeting Israelis that appeared to come out of the military and it, it, it just gruesome videos and captions and so on, really glorying in, reveling in, killing. And uh, there was initially a denial that the this material had anything to do with the IDF. You know, thousands of videos and images uploaded with captions. One, an October 11 post read, you know, burning their mother. You won't believe the video, video we've got. You can hear their bones crunch. We'll post it right away. Get ready. Exterminating the roaches. I won't get into more of it. It's just really, really horrible. The point is the IDF denied it at first, but they did then organize an investigation and that uh, found the information that the original denial that the channel uh, was operated you know, from the army in any way was incorrect. And that in fact, it had come out of a unit that is charged with you know, influencing. Uh, who they thought that was, was being influenced by this channel, it was called 72 Virgins Uncensored. Why they thought people would be motivated by that is itself depressing, that they thought this would please an Israeli audience. But anyway, once they'd done their finding uh, investigation, IDF officials themselves contacted Haaretz, had broken the story, and said that uh, after a thorough investigation, it was found this page was operated by the IDF, 
but without authorization. Do you, is that accountability in a way? Yes, because they did their own investigation and came clean what it found. They said the incident has been dealt with. I found the existence of the channel itself incredibly dispiriting, but perhaps there's some uh, consolation in knowing that the army, after it had been exposed in the media, did get to the bottom of it. Will it make you feel better if you know that before Aritz uh, published this, it only had 5,000 followers? I'm just trying to make you feel better. Um, look, can, <laughs> I think we can continue with the questions. Hi, Jonathan Ionit. Just to let you know, I love the podcast and it's a highlight of my week to listen to it. Um, I originally come from Britain. I now live in the Galil. And um, I think one of the things I've noticed since coming here is the difference between when you're living in Israel and when you're outside of Israel, which you highlight on your podcast quite often. Uh, a good example of is the settlements. And, you know, everyone here has a family member or knows someone or is connected to settlements, you know. The portrayal of settlements when you're outside of Israel is very, very negative. In fact, you know, bordering on, on, on hatred. Now, the vast majority of people I know living in settlements are lovely, normal people. Um, and even though it's unpopular outside of Israel, I think the fact that there's such wide support within Israel, it, it needs to be discussed in more detail. It's not so black and white. Um, and I think it's hard for you to get over, uh, Jonathan specifically, the, the Chutzla Aretz uh, attitude, which you're fed constantly through the press and, and the view of the settlements versus within Israel. What do you guys think? Well, uh, we may react differently to this. I mean, I'm not surprised that um, there's little understanding around the world, that, or, or to way, the way Jonathan puts it, uh, that the depiction of settlers outside Israel is very negative. Uh, you know, settling in territory you conquered in war or won in war is illegal under international law, and that's what where most people think it begins and ends. My issue has always been that that shouldn't be, and in too many places, it is conflated with the people who live in what I would call Israel proper. You know, the Israel that is constituted by a resolution of the United Nations in 1947 that is internationally recognized. When people call the community and say, Kibbutz Be'eri, uh, settlers, as some people do, or when they hold banners talking about settler colonialism. In fact, we did. We haven't got time to hear it, but we did get a question from Phil about how come that's now the lens through which many people view Israel and delegitimizing Israel. That, I agree, is a complete, um, it's a huge problem and not fair because those are people who live in a internationally recognized country. The, by that very same token, you cannot expect, I think, people around the same rest of the world to feel the same way about people who live in territory that is not internationally recognized and constituted. So that's my that would be my piece about settlers, even though, and he because he said they're not all evil people, of course not. A lot of people went to live in those places because that's where housing was affordable. And they thought that's what their government wanted them to do because governments have been encouraging people to live in those places for decades. So I, I don't have a, some kind of personal animus to the people who made that choice, but I do get why people are in the around the world see, you know, make a distinction between Israelis who live inside 1967 borders and people who live in, in the settlements. So like everything, obviously, and specifically that has to do with Israel, there are different shades here, right? And the final status, when there is ever a Palestinian state, it's clear that settlement blocks 
will be uh, Israeli and that there is a difference between settlement blocks and between uh, isolated uh, outposts. That's pretty clear. It's also, I want to use, I actually want to use this question to explain something we talked about last episode, and that was our poll of Channel 12 that said that almost 40%, 38% of Israelis support the idea of resettling Gaza. Now, why is this interesting? This this uh, conversation may be only beginning now, but will, I think, become a very big deal when the war is over, when it looks like the war is, is over. Because what are parts of the Israeli right saying? Look, we had settlements in Gaza. And when we had settlements in Gaza, we had nothing like October 7th. So actually, settlements are contributing to the security of other Israelis, right? That is one claim. Now, I'm, I'm not going to get into the argument and say that most of the settlements were actually on the uh, west part close to the sea and not the east part close to the border. N- never mind. But this is what a lot of Israelis are saying. And they're also saying settlements mean uh, military presence. And when you think of the Gazan border, who's, that's 67 kilometers long, but you think of the West Bank border, that is 700 kilometers long, you can't protect that in any way without having essentially a military presence in in the West Bank. So that's a whole conversation that we'll start. The other side is going to say, wait a minute, a country that cannot define its borders is destined not to be able to protect them. And that is going to be a very deep argument. What I'm saying is the reason that you're seeing somehow this uptick in many Israelis saying we want to, maybe the idea of resettlement, resettling Gaza, which was really the fringes of Israeli society up to a, a very short a while ago, is because they, they tap into that sentiment that says, or that notion that says settlements are actually better for Israeli security. So that is going to be part of uh, the conversation. Sometimes when, is, when people from outside Israel ask me, why have Israelis moved so much to the right? I say, well, it's reality that has moved to the right, because if Israelis say, we disengage from Gaza, we dismantle all the settlements, this is what we got, we got October 7th, then it will be very difficult to convince them to disengage and to dismantle other settlements. I think that's very useful to explain that and um, and the logic of it being a security logic rather than some sort of fervent messianism or something. That's useful and clarifying, I think. I think it's wrong, not your explanation of it, but the people who hold that view, because my view has always been settlements are a drain on security, not a protection or an enhancement of security. But I think that's, you know, very... Uh, Clarified because I think other people, again, outside the country probably saw that number and thought, oh my God, they've all gone into full on sort of messianism, like the people who gathered in that conference a couple of weeks ago who were on some sort of ecstatic sort of high about, you know, as if prophecy and revelation uh, and settling the whole land of Israel. What you're saying is much, it makes much more sense in terms of it being a pragmatic calculation, which um, I disagree with it, but I get it. Let's go to. A question about the relationship, really, and something this whole podcast has been about from the very beginning. Uh, And this question comes from very far away from both of us. Hi, Onid and Jonathan. My name's Tully, and I'm a big fan from Australia right from the beginning. One of the silver linings of this war, at least to me, has been seeing the incredible unity both within Israel and between Israelis and Jews around the world. In contrast to the beginning of 2023, in which there was so much division surrounding the Supreme Court reform. Do you think this will be maintained or do you think we'll return to the status quo? And how can we keep the connection between Israel and the diaspora strong in a post-war context? Really interesting question from Tali. Uh, And, you know, uh, it is quite true that 
October 7th did bring out something even in, I'm just going to talk about the diaspora bit of it for a second, even in Jews who didn't know how attached to Israel they were. And to me, that's been the most interesting, you know, sort of almost psychological bit of the uh, whole story from the point of view of where I sit in the diaspora. The Just individuals, friends I know, who who hadn't checked in, as it were, with Israel for decades, who suddenly felt absolutely gripped by what had happened and and struck by what had happened, as if it hit them. And so for months, it has been a kind of solidarity. I think that's right. I f- feel that that is under strain, partly because of the people we've talked about, the younger, the progressive wing, who in America particularly, it's where it's really most visible, even when they're shocked and horrified by what happened on October 7th, just can't keep supporting the Israeli response. And that is putting strain on, you know, generational strain, particularly in the American Jewish community. But you see versions of it in other diaspora communities as well. And also, I would say that, you know, what Tali is describing inside Israel of unity is also under strain. You've been telling us about it week after week about that, you know, those who think we've got to stop in order to get the hostages out and those who, in a way, you know, think, well, it's a shame if those hostages don't come back, but we've got to keep on going. Uh, so I wonder how much unity there still is. Certainly in the immediate weeks of October 7th, a lot. But some of that feels more strained now. And I just do feel, again, it goes back to what we talked about before, the politics around this particular government, you know, there have been right-wing governments in Israel before, and, and that has people have managed to stay pretty united. This is a different story. And I think that strain in relationship of diaspora Jews being asked, in effect, to line up behind a government of Netanyahu, Ben-Gavir, Smotrich, Patience is wearing very thin on that. Not everywhere, but in significant portions of the the Jewish world. I actually really agree with what you said. I think that, um, which is good for Israeli diaspora relationship, I think. I think that the first kind of weeks were uh, shocking. And and as you said, a lot of people in diaspora who kind of didn't want to deal with Israel. I remember we had a very uh, prominent friend of the pod saying on this podcast at some point, we're ashamed uh, when we think about Israel, that was very saddening for me. But I think that went away for a while after October 7th. And I think now it is coming back. So it's something to look at. I also think that Israelis really feel the, can I say the love? I think I can. The love and the emotion and the support from the diaspora. Obviously, a lot of people coming here to see what happened. Obviously, a flow of support, a flow of uh, funding is something that is very important. And I think Israelis feel that. And I think in that regard, the connection has become uh, stronger. I think it's up to us, both sides of this conversation, to think about how to um, make it, uh, to keep it that way. And I, I think that would lead us into our next question. Shalom, my name is Noga and I'm 16 years old. I recorded a message last time and you said some very nice and thoughtful things to me. So thank you. I love you and this podcast so much. Okay, so this time my question is, um, basically after hearing all of the awful anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic things that people from all over the world are saying right now, how do you not lose faith in essentially humanity? How are you not scared for the Jewish and Israeli people's future when especially my generation, Gen Z, uh, who will eventually rule the world, is justifying Hamas actions on October 7th and believe that Israel shouldn't exist, as I saw a lot online. How are you not scared? 
We love Nogger. We do. Um, <laughs> and we really do. And we're so grateful that you're listening, Nogger. And second time you've managed to ask a very sort of, a, you know, important but also kind of moving question, really. I hear the concern, the anxiety, the fear in your voice. And in a way, you've distilled what I think so many people are feeling, um, particularly around the world, because there has definitely been, you can't deny it, there's been a huge surge upward in anti-Semitic attacks on Jewish communities, and yes, opposition to Israel. Um, and the, the the signs in your generation are particularly worrying. You know, we had Scott Galloway on a few weeks ago talking about TikTok and social media, and where bizarrely, you know, where people who are consuming eight, nine hours a day of news via TikTok you have these bizarre numbers where, you know, majorities support Hamas over Israel. And I stress Hamas were there. It's not like they're siding with the Palestinians over Israel. That I have to say I would understand in a period like this, among the young especially. But no, they're actually supporting Hamas. This is the same medium, by the way, where Osama bin Laden became a hero a few months back, where everyone was circulating an article that, uh, or a text um, associated with him. So the consolation I would have is, A, people like you, um, you know, make me feel that the future is going to be in safe hands. But second, I would say the fact that people are addressing this and thinking about it and talking about it. You know, Scott Galloway is one example, but there are many more people who are sort of waking up a bit to something like TikTok, but also uh, the, the other toxic content that is out there on social media. People are not just sort of closing their eyes to it or unaware of it. And that is the first step towards dealing with the problem is recognizing that you have a problem. And I think something that's come out of these recent months is a recognition of that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I'll just add that I think that every time you kind of late, lose your faith in humanity, it helps to look backwards and not to look at where you are now and where we have been and where we are uh, is important. Um, I, I don't think it's a, there's a way not to be scared uh, about what is going on. I think it's very concerning. Uh, in a way, October 7th gave people license to say what they think of Jews, and I think it's been a very scary time, uh, maybe scariest since the 1930s. But it's also, I think, important to say, remember that quote that Barack Obama always used to quote of uh, Martin Luther King, the arc of moral universe it longs, but it bends, is long, but it bends towards justice. Maybe it doesn't bend towards justice, but there's definitely a ebb and a flow. There's definitely a pendulum that's swinging. And if we now see a rise in these terrible phenomena, they're going to become dormant and at some point. It's always the mob that makes the noise. But I think that most of the people who saw these d demonstrations in Western cities were concerned, and not only Jews were concerned watching it. So that's important. And if I didn't convince you or make you feel better, um, I could just say that eventually Gen Zs will grow up. So that, that maybe can be something to, to think about. Um, and please, you know, Noga, keep on sending our, uh, us questions every time we do our listener thing. We promise to put you on because we really do love your questions. We do. And um, I think we might close with a question which in a way touches really directly on what you and I are doing here with this podcast, um, Yonit. So why don't we hear this last question? Hi, Yonit. Hi, Jonathan. My name is Elizabeth. Um, I'm originally from Germany, uh, but a student right now in the Netherlands. I have been listening for quite a while uh, to your podcast. It was recommended to me by my boyfriend, who is Israeli. And we've both been listening to the podcast quite regularly since the war began, especially, because we really find our conversations 
in the ones you have. And um, this is also where the question I have <laughs> comes in and probably like you're also trying to figure this out still. But from your experience, like what is your advice for people that live far from each other and that sometimes have diverging opinions to still have a somewhat productive, like good conversation about those hard topics like the war? Wow. I don't know, I don't know what... <laughs> But what was your advice, Val? <laughs> Two people who live far from each other and have differing opinions should speak about this subject. Yonit and I are... In, um, we, we know uh, no example of this in our lives, so we, don't, we can't relate to this <laughs> yes. question at all. It's like, I wrote the question. Oh, uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, wow. First of all, thank you for that. It's a, a beautiful question and a beautiful story. So, Jonathan, I know I have my well, answer, think... but I'm waiting for yours. <laughs> Well, I think the truth is it is hard. And, you know, people have heard it with you, with you and me, Yoni, about how difficult it can be at times. And, you know, we did that episode, which um, people still come up to me and talk to me about. Called, we called it war therapy, sort of thrashing out these things. Uh, but, but we've done it. I mean, and I think, what you know, what um, Elizabeth says about having a productive and good conversation, I mean, I really do feel we've managed to do that. And I think we've done it by actually talking it all out and and not shying away from the difficult topics. And, and we do do that. And no one pretends it's easy, but the, you know, your response, Elizabeth, but also others suggest people do find it in a way easier to hear uh, and easier to think about these things when they hear other people doing it. So I think you, as in you and me, you'll need. So I think... Um, the, the only trick to this is to keep having those conversations, not to shy away from them. In a way, that's what we've always been wanting is diaspora and Israel to actually talk to each other, even when it's painful, rather than sort of turn their backs on each other, which was and is a danger. Mm. And so our, you know, to, to the extent we have a, a sort of formula, it's just to keep on talking, I think. Yes. And I would add to that, I think, to have to be in a state of mind that says, I am not, I'm trying to listen and I'm trying to understand. And I am not trying to win an argument. It's a difficult place to be in, uh, particularly if you're Israeli. I think I've told you this joke a hundred times, but if Descartes had grown up in Israel, his cogito would be, I think therefore you're wrong. So that is, you know, a, a, a difficult place to be in. But I think that is the state of mind that can help you. Because I've noticed, particularly in the past couple of months, when Jonathan can say something that I, you know, feel like I want to throw a plate at him, maybe other blunt objects. But the, the point is that there is enough respect and uh, a strong enough connection that you can actually listen and realize that we grew up in a different way, that we live different lives. We still have similarities, but that we will always think differently because of the place we come from and that that's okay. I think that's I mean, right. besides and the also, fact that you didn't say see every episode of The West Wing, which really is infuriating, and I don't know how we fix that. I do. I only missed a few, but I'm a big fan. No, I think it's also about knowing where the other person's coming from, not just that it's going to be different, that's true, but knowing that they care, I think is very, very important. In other words, I can take a lot from, you know, this may surprise you, when there are people who will criticise Israel so much more than you think I do um, that I, I hear, and some I'm of them. I'm just not doing a podcast with them. <laughs> yeah, but I, there are some of them I absolutely listen, I engage, 
And because I feel they care about it, it matters to them. They're upset by it. It hurts them because it's their family sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Once I feel that, I can hear I can hear and take almost anything. If you feel somebody is sort of, you know, poking from the outside, partly almost gleefully or gloatingly or something, that's I'm not interested in that and I can't hear that. So, so, you know, I'm admitting something. It's just a sort of emotional thing is if I know the other person is in this thing. And by the way, that extends outside just Jews and Israelis. You know, I, there are... There is, to me, a world of difference between, you know, someone who has a stake in this, Palestinian or Muslim, who really feels it, is very different to me from the sort of political tourist who's just flicking through lots of stories and then suddenly thinks they're on Twitter or whatever, and he's suddenly the big expert on Israel-Palestine, and next week it will be something else. Um, that, I have very little patience for that. But if I feel people are involved in this, they're embedded in it, it's their family, it's their identity, it's their history, I can really sort of take quite a lot. And with you and me, we both know that about each other, that this is really important to us and we're deeply involved in it. And in a way, that's what we unite on, even if you know our take on this or that issue is different. So we are very grateful to you, Elizabeth Helena Knetsch, and all of uh, our listeners who sent in so many really good questions. As last time, we only managed to do a smattering because you and me, on it talk too much. <laughs> I think. I and agree. we leave so little room. We leave so little room for anyone else. We apologize. Anyway, let's rattle through um, yes. because our award season is beckoning. And so let's begin with our Chutzpah Awards. Um, funnily enough, we had Tally from Australia with her question. Australia, again, in the news because of a um, parliamentarian in that country, Jenny Leong, who is a Green, uh, an MP for the Greens in Australia. Video emerged of her this week uh, saying that she was put out by the Jewish community, I think referred to as the Jewish lobby and Zionist lobby, always a bit of a, a, a red flag when you hear that, saying they are infiltrating into every single aspect of what is ethnic community groups. They rock up and they're part of the campaign and offer to support things like, uh, gives various examples, and they offer that connection because their tentacles reach into the areas that try and influence power. We need to call that out and expose it, said Jenny Leong, whose Twitter profile, by the way, included the words, just don't be a racist. That was what her moth message about herself was. Here's the thing about this. There's been a huge backlash about the use of the word tentacles because, of course, that plays into a very particular trope. The Nazis used it, imagining Jews as a kind of octopus encircling the globe. And so that's the bit that's, you know, she said, oh, yes, I used an appropriate word, inappropriate word, and she's apologized for that or taken that back. No. What is she doing saying the Jewish communities, when they take part in anti-racist activity and offer to support campaigns against racial discrimination with other ethnic minorities, are infiltrating? That is the anti-Semitic thought that Jews are not a real ethnic minority and are instead operating on some kind of insidious other agenda, infiltrating. What kind of word is that? So yes, tentacles, appalling. But the whole thing was, to my mind, uh, anti-Semitic and her statement that she did not intend to reference an anti-Semitic cartoon depicting Jews as an octopus, slightly missing the point. It's a larger anti-Semitic thought, not just that one use of that one word, tentacles. So a chutzpah award to Jenny Leong, uh, who may need to rethink 
her Twitter profile uh, in which she said, just stop being racist because maybe she needs to take that closer to home. Maybe. Um, I, can I just add a nominee? Like, we don't have to give him Please. the award, but just a nominee uh, to yeah. it's- Itzhak Golknop. He's the, he's the head of the ultra-Orthodox United Torah Judaism Party here. And he was asked about, uh, we talked about this a little bit about right accountability and responsibility. Uh, he was asked about this, about uh, whether or not the government is responsible and does someone need to resign after the colossal failure of October 7th? And he said, I don't see anybody resigning. What is that good for? And they also added and said, what does the government have to do with the war? That was his quote. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, there's something, I mean, there's so much to say that the, he has been proving throughout his uh, political career that he lives in a slightly different reality. He uh, said that he was unaware of a housing crisis uh, when he began to be the housing minister. Uh, although you can just notice just, you know, that is a crisis. Uh, unless you're blind, you have to notice. And just that point about what does the government have to do with a war is just a line that I, you know, I can't actually get out uh, of my head. He is not the one to decide if this government quits after the war, yes or no, right? And this sentences like this make it easier for the public to decide. Uh, a worthy nominee. By the way, Jenny Leong's uh, Twitter profile says, and remember, don't be a racist. That was the way she put it. Good advice, Jenny. You might want to take that <laughs> as you receive your Chutzpah of the Week award. Uh, but we do have a mensch, need. I think we should give our Mensch Award of the Week to French President Emmanuel Macron, who hosted a memorial uh, service for October 7th. He called it the biggest anti-Semitic massacre of our century. He said that he's vowing to work every day to release the hostages. Just a really um, impressive ceremony that uh, Israelis were watching and were very emotional about. We, maybe we should uh, say that 42 French Citizens, I mean, Israeli citizens with French citizenship uh, as well, were murdered on October 7th, and they're hostages among uh, uh, the uh, French uh, citizens. So that is something that is also personal for, for him, but just the, the way in which he said it and the way he conducted himself emotionally is something that I think is very important for, for Israelis. Yeah, and I saw one report saying that those uh, families got what many of the Israeli families have not yet got, that degree of recognition uh, from the top. So uh, Emmanuel Macron, I don't know whether we've he's been a Mensch of the Week before for us, but he gets that award. So Australia, France, politicians there, all around the world, you are all eligible for our Chutzpah and Mensch uh, of the Week awards. You can be like Emmanuel Macron and win the Mensch one. Or you could be like our green friend in Australia. That's a different one. So there are all kinds of awards available. Uh, you just need to, uh, you know, raise your game or lower your game, depending. Um, we want to say all our thank yous. And I'm just going to say, I'm sure both of us want to say thank you, especially this week, to everybody who sent in those brilliant questions. Uh, we appreciate them so, so much. We really do. And thank you to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, and Omri Barak. Maybe next week, Jonathan, will be in London. We don't know. Or maybe in another continent. Stay tuned. <laughs> London is definitely the plan. Um, but but uh, unless you've got some surprise up your sleeve for me, uh, I will be back there Wait for it, Phileas. <laughs> See you then. See ya.